Hello everyone, I'm James Lindsay, you are listening to the New Discourses Podcast. And one of the things I like to do, or I think has become very important for me to do here at New Discourses, is to convey to you not just what wokeness is as a kind of worldview or a philosophy, but also not just how it, what it is, how it thinks, how it misuses language, that's what the social justice encyclopedia is about, but also to give you this clear sense that this isn't some new aberration. This isn't something that just came out of the ground in June last year after George Floyd died, or in 2015 with some college professors and kids going crazy that slowly built up. This is, in fact, a much longer project, um, and there are consistent themes. And so what I kind of want to show you is that the intellectual and philosophical and activist precursors to wokeness all contain these same kinds of ideas, these same patterns, that these patterns didn't just come out of the ground, that this is actually an entire genus of bad thought. Wokeness is one species. Marxism is another species. If we get more specifically within Marxism, we can actually look at Leninism. That's a species. Stalinism, that's a species. Khmer Rouge, that's a species. Maoism, that's a species. We can look at lots of the things throughout the history, especially of the 20th century, but also some of the things of the 19th century, and see a clear pattern that these things are, they share many things in common. So recently here on the podcast, I, I had what I thought was a much, a very important episode, something I'd really been wanting to do for a while. I wanted to talk about how wokeness is, represents but also arises from a long history of people with particular lines of especially left-wing thought having a crisis of authenticity. And so we had a podcast about authenticity. It was very well received. I think it was a very important message. If you haven't heard it, you should go listen. What I tried to do in that podcast wasn't just talk about what I think authenticity is or why I think authenticity is important, which I think is extremely important. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, that this didn't just come out of the ground, right? This is a theme I really want people to understand. I recently gave a talk and used a metaphor that I've been very positively, I think, teased for, that it's a that, that critical race theory, my metaphor was, is the tip of a 100-year-long spear, or a tip of a spear with a 100-year-long shaft. And you can imagine the kinds of jokes that that has inspired, and bless them. Uh, that's, I have enjoyed these jokes, don't get me wrong. I very much enjoyed them, but as I would. But this is beside the point. Today I want to talk about the assault on reason. It's not about authenticity or whatever. I want to talk about that there's been a consistent pattern in this genus of thought that is an assault on reason itself. Now, of course, although he's controversial, um, I think I can call him my friend Stephen Hicks, has a book called Explaining Postmodernism that you might want to check out, where he tries to frame out postmodernism itself as kind of the newest instantiation, although obviously he leaves out woke, of this counter-enlightenment, this rejection of enlightenment line of thought that he traces back all the way to Immanuel Kant with his critique of pure reason quite controversially. I tend to focus my thoughts a little further forward. I think Kant is a complicated figure in terms of his relationship to Enlightenment thought. And I tend to focus primarily on uh, one of his successors, German idealist Hegel, as kind of the starting place of this particular genus of, um, 
bad thinking, but this isn't what we're talking about today. Because I want to talk about this assault on reason, and obviously you could look at Kant and you could say, oh, critique of pure reason. Um, obviously there's something going on there. But of course that also opens the door. Critiquing pure reason opens the door to saying that you need something else like empiricism. So it could be a very enlightenment-based philosophy. So my, my objective here isn't to, con to contend with Hicks. I'm just trying I mentioned Stephen's work because I want to point you toward it as another piece in this puzzle if you haven't read it. Um, explaining postmodernism is worth the read. Um, but this assault on reason and the idea of reasonability is very old. And wokeness exhibits this in the here and now in 2021. Uh, whereas these kinds of assaults on reason have been going on for a very long time, ever since the Enlightenment began. And it's very easy to kind of frame wokeness and its intellectual precursors as being at least at tension, but really I think at odds with the Enlightenment, the very counter-Enlightenment movement. Um, we can quote, for example, from, as I often do, the Critical Race Theory textbook, Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which is written by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. It's a core, central, fundamental, usual, typical, whatever you want to say, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a core curriculum textbook for Critical Race Theory as an introduction to the subject. And at the end of the first paragraph, they say that unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which I've quoted this so many times, which favor incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order. And then they list four things that are uh, to be included in the foundations of the liberal order that critical race theory calls into question. And they say that they call into question equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, that's what we're talking about today, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. And so even today, my point isn't to rail on critical race theory at the moment, even today, even today, critical race theory is the theory that everybody's focusing on today. We have this assault on the idea of enlightenment rationalism, this idea of reason. And I think that this is, is pretty important. So what is, it's very important to understand that, that Critical race theory, for example, wokeness in general, which includes queer theory, post-colonial theory, fat studies, disability studies, gender theory, lots of these additional theories, any st cultural studies, media studies, critical pedagogy, are all kind of wrapped up in this critical theory in the older sense, is all kind of wrapped up in this. And they all really call into question the idea of enlightenment rationalism. They're all positioned as counter-enlightenment philosophies that are inimical to the idea of reason in their own in various ways. Um, so for a second, let's talk about what uh, what is enlightenment rationalism? What is reason about? Um, I just want to focus on the idea, the relationship that the enlightenment philosophers had with the concept of reason. I don't think these guys were naive. Um, they did develop one of the more sophisticated philosophies of knowledge that has come about. And I think the fruits of, I mean, this podcast is a fruit of their view in that regard, that we can actually know things that are going on in the world with, with remarkable precision, that we can engage in methodological process or practices that lead us to refine knowledge very efficiently, very effectively, um, but they also realized that the problem, and I don't want to put this in some negative light, but the problem in a sense is people. People are men and women of passion 
and I mean that in kind of the old Greek sense. Um, they're men and women of emotion. They're, we are social animals who navigate our lives very intuitively. If you read somebody like Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, if you read somebody like Joshua Green and Moral Tribes, what you come away with is this very obvious sense that human beings have two modes of thought, one intuitive and one rational. Intuitive is fast. Intuitive is necessary. Intuitive is important to navigate our social reality, which is the majority of our day-to-day -day existence, living with and depending upon other people. But then we have this slower way of thinking where we get things right, where we slow it down, we consider our our biases. We realize maybe that we are engines of confirmation bias and we try to step away into a frame of disconfirmation or defeasibility in philosophy, falsification in science. Disconfirmation. We talk about that. Peter Boghossian and I talk about that. As, it's probably the longest and most important section in our book, How to Have Impossible Conversations, talking about the focus on defeasibility rather than uh, confirmation whether that's through empirical falsification or whether that's through philosophical defeasibility. Uh, very important. So we have this ability to slow down and be rational. And I think the Enlightenment philosophers realized and when and their, their appeals to rationalism weren't to say that human beings are these kind of cold, rational animals, the homo economicus, as some people have put it. Um, we are, in fact, men and women of passion. We, in fact, are very emotional and intuitive creatures, and we are very, very heavily swayed by our social environment. In fact, I think that the Enlightenment thinkers may have even underestimated this, but they weren't naive to it. Just how much we value fitting in with a social group over getting to the truth or getting something right. I think that, that, that they actually undervalued this and, and overvalued the degree to which people will choose to behave reasonably. And we are well, especially when there's a social pressure not to. And we are now in a situation where that's kind of just broken loose and become really crazy, as will happen here and there throughout history as it develops. And so what they wanted to do was lay out systems of thought and philosophy that led people to, uh, to realize, people especially in decision-making capacities, to realize that reason is necessary to make good decisions. We are going to be prone not to be reasonable, so we must divide powers, for example. This was a core liberal enlightenment kind of idea. We are going we are prone to be irrational, to seek confirmation bias, so our scientific processes have to rely upon trying to knock down ideas that are incorrect, trying to disprove rather than prove. Although there are still, of course, existence. Um projects that are, that are, you know, does this particle exist or whatever. Uh, but this is a very important thing that the Enlightenment period brought to the world is that we tend not to be the best, most precise, rational, fair-minded, objective thinkers. And so what we need to do is install systems that take that person out of the equation. So if you think of like liberalism or what, what Jonathan Rauch and Kindly Inquisitors calls liberal science, which is this rational process as a, as a, as a system rather than as something an individual does. Uh, what you see is that you remove the person from, from the knowledge-making process. People make knowledge, but no individual person in, in Rauch's terms gets final say and no individual person has special authority. 
there's constant checking of each by each. There's a division of powers in, in politics. And these ideas try to separate man from his intuitive, social, um, and emotional, passionate, in the Greek sense, nature, where it comes to the, the question of getting right answers to hard questions in the world. And it's very successful when people can actually do it. Uh, Rausch's defense, again, not to mention too many things you should read, but if you haven't read Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rausch, you need to. Uh, unquestionable, unquestionable, you have to read this book if you want to understand the way it is that human beings come to knowledge in the post-Enlightenment philosophy world. I don't mean post-Enlightenment like we've left Enlightenment behind. I mean since the Enlightenment occurred. This is what we've realized. This is what we've figured out. This is what we've codified. And this is what has brought so much success so much ability to where we can have these philosophers who can sit in their comfortable armchairs and think up utter bullshit that would tear society apart because they're comfortable enough to have the time to do it and they're not subsistence farmers as 95% or more of the country of the United States was in 1776 when it was founded. This has raised a nation out of that to where something like 2% or fewer than 2% are farmers. Very few of us rely on what we can grow, hunt, trap, kill fish catch whatever to eat and that we might starve in the winter so we have lots of leisure to be able to think and come up with stupid philosophies like literary theory that we're going to inject through stupid cringe outlets like vox into the into the mainstream and like tear everything apart this is this is the fruit of of great success a certain irony to that with the woke now, I don't want to linger on this and linger too much on the old stuff, but because I, I want to talk about kind of stuff that's happened in maybe the last hundred years or so to give you a sense of the length of time in which, if we're going to talk about a spear with a hundred-year-long shaft, we've got to focus on the last century. And we're talking about, you know, the 17th and 18th centuries, and we're talking about the Enlightenment maybe even earlier. And we have to stick there for a second because I want to mention very briefly Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, who in some sense is the philosopher, you know, great French philosopher, and in some sense the, the intellectual predecessor that led to the, the, the catastrophe of the French Revolution. And, you know, he gets a lot of blame. And Rousseauian thought, Rousseauian ideas, kind of the very romantic, the, I mean, he was sort of, in a sense, the, the, the ship that launched the romantic movement, which is this very emotive, intuitive, and almost anti-rational kind of movement of thought and art, um, he gets a lot of blame here because he literally had hit the point where he rejected the primacy of reason in favor of emotion. He had a tremendous skepticism of reason. Part of this had to do with the fact that he was uh, collaborating with David Hume, or I don't know that collaborating is the right word, but they, they were certainly in, in communication. And Hume, of course, is putting forth this famous uh, his famous razor that you can't derive an ought from an is, and um, all of these kinds of thoughts and watching what he was watching led him to become very skeptical of reason and very much in favor of that emotion. Without the kind of insights that Daniel Kahneman, for example, can provide now, where we do have two modes of thought, one faster and one slower, and that intuitive mode is absolutely crucial to navigating the social world whereas, because it's too slow to think through and calculate what your relationships are going to look like. It's 
fake it. People are uncomfortable, made uncomfortable by it. You have to be able to intuit your way through the social environment. But at the same time, if you want to get right answers to the world, or more importantly, want to avoid wrong answers, you have to be able to use that that rational side. And this is, I mean, this is probably neurobiologically structural to what human beings are. Our frontal cortex, prefrontal cortex ahead of that developed much later than our than our limbic system, which is down in our kind of mammalian brain uh, and even, you know, deep hindbrain, whereas this frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex where we're really doing rational activity has to like kind of, it's newer and it kind of has to override those deeper, quicker neural impulses that come up out of the emotional and intuitive mind. And Rousseau was wrong to think that we should put emotion over reason. It's very helpful. I mean, I think Kahneman's quite clear and Joshua Green are quite clear that this works very, very well when you're doing social activity, but it works very, very poorly when you're trying to get to the right answers about questions in the world. Your emotion is a bad guide for what's going on, frankly. This is why kind of phenomenologically interpreted lived experience, which they call my lived experience, is not the best guide for what's actually happening in your world. I've given, I think, fruitfully the example of a panic attack on this. You show up having a panic attack to the hospital. You think you're having a heart attack. Your lived experience is that you're having a heart attack, but in fact, you're not. You're absolutely not. And if you get treated for a heart attack, based on your lived experience, trying to override the slower, more um, technical, and ultimately scientific and falsified falsification-based approach that a doctor, the doctor is going to hook you up and do some tests, find out what's going on with your heart. And when he sees that your heart is racing, but otherwise okay, he's probably going to derive that you're having a panic attack rather than a heart attack. But if he just treated you for a heart attack, injecting you with whatever, or hitting you with the defibrillator, he'd probably kill you. And so lived experience in that sense with emotions riding high is not a very good way to interpret the world around us. It is important for our social interactions. It's not even always the best way to approach our social interactions, but it is important to them. And uh, our intuition is often very helpful, but it's often misleading slowing down, getting things precise, getting things exactly right when the outcome really matters is absolutely crucial. Social faux pas can be fixed through conversation, through more dialogue, through helping one another understand. But in the moment of you getting hit with that shock treatment on your chest, you know, that second you're dead. It's not, you don't have that kind of flexibility there. And so when it matters to get things right, you have to use methods to get things right. Now, Somebody who is very interested in Rousseau's thought, and somebody I keep meaning to talk about more in the future, and I have a little bit stuff of stuff coming out about him, but I still have been too lazy to organize a proper discussion of him, is, is Hegel. And Hegel, I don't want to linger on Hegel, but the goal here is to kind of get to the neo-Marxists, and that we have to talk about Hegel for a minute to get to the neo-Marxists and really connect to this. Uh, so Hegel had two ideas about reason. So we're talking about this being a counter-enlightenment, an anti-reason line of thinking. Well, Hegel in Hegel's philosophy is is very systematic. It's supposed to complete. It's supposed to be a complete system of philosophy that you know one could organize their lives by and understand things in life by. And he actually has two concepts within the broad category of science, what the Germans would call Wissenschaft. Um, he's got two categories within that, and I'm, my pronunciations are terrible, and I apologize to all of you who speak German, especially people who are German. Uh, but uh, he has his, his a lower level, which is where Stand, which 
obviously is like understand uh, is the translation. It's understanding. Um, so it's like that's that's what we call science. Wissenschaft is a much broader category of science, even though it gets translated to science in English. It's a much broader category. It's like entire systems of thought fall under the idea of Wissenschaft uh, and kind of its older use anyway. And so underneath that, you know, Hegel had a higher order level above where stand that was where numft, which this is a somewhat mysterious concept. It gets translated in both um, translations of Hegel from German into English, but also when you see the neo-Marxists write and they're talking about Hegel, you can tell when they're using this concept because they capitalize the R in reason. And for um, for Hegel, and this is actually very important, this was this meant his his whole system of, of philosophy, his whole system of thought, the entire systematic philosophy, the idealistic philosophy that he was laying out, has at the low level where stand understanding the world, and then where nymphed is this higher level of kind of interpretation, his philosophy specifically, and that is the true science for him when he calls his phenomenology of spirit a system of science. Uh, that's what he's talking about. Um, when he has another book called The Logic of Science, that's what he's talking about, is this difference between the lower level of understanding, where stand, and the higher level of where nunft. And I contend that this is what the neo-Marxists translated into the ideas of traditional theory, which is meant to understand the world, and critical theory, which is meant to change the world following Marx. Marx becomes the bridge here. But this is, of course, what Hegel thought was a system of science. And so Marx picks this up. Marx is not a strict Hegelian. Marx was a member of what is uh, of a group of people, a group of thinkers in the mid-19th century known as the Young Hegelians. His mentor was not Hegel, but Feuerbach, who was also a Young Hegelian. The Young Hegelians were... Um, there were two major branches. It turns out Hegel was quite the rock star in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, um, just after his death in particular. And there were two huge schools of thought of interpretation around Hegel's work at the time in what was at the time Prussia, 19th century Prussia. And the old Hegelians were very, very conservative, and they believed that what Hegel had described was a perfected state in the existing Prussian state, and the young Hegelians were progressives, and they thought this is not correct. There's so much work that still needs to be done, and they wanted to use his dialectical method and his, his, his systematic philosophy to try to create a more perfect society. Well, Marx was in this line of thought, as you might imagine, um, knowing what you might know about Marx. And so Karl Marx decided to take out all of this idealism of Hegel and bring it down into the world with what he called dialectical materialism, which he thought of as a science of history and a science of economics. He thought this was the, when we say science here again, we're in that same kind of paradigm though that, that uh, Hegel would have used, but also with the fact that here he is in this kind of industrial, growing increasingly industrial world looking at it and seeing the fruits of what normal people now today call science, you know, empirical uh, investigation and so on. And so he formulated Mar he formulated his ideas about history, which has gone on to become Marxism, as the true scientific approach to understanding the world 
and the economy and their roles together. So this is where Marx is coming from. That He's created this idea of scientific economics and scientific history. And he's derived that from Hegel's ideas. And then again, you still have this two levels of thought here that there's um, what the processes of science, say like scientific experimentation, uh, you know, formulation of models, etc., as a low level. But all of that has to be understood in terms of theory. So this is kind of what he saw as wedding theory and praxis, which is putting um putting theory into practice. So the theory, Marx, Marxist theory or Marxian theory um, had to be put into practice, had to be applied to the world, and they believed that they were doing so scientifically. And in fact, that everybody else just had a very low-level science and they had the true science. The true, this led to an utter catastrophe, of course, in both the Soviet Union and in China after they became communist because Lysenkoism, which was seen as um, Soviet science to replace the bourgeois science, it's real science, because it was now theoretically informed, was applied particularly to agriculture and led to the massive starvation of probably over 100 million people between the two countries, and plus the deaths of people who resisted it. So this is a terrible idea. Well, this gives you just some idea then. that the, the, So the people in the, in the wake of Marx, I guess this is the way to say it, have a very different relationship to the concept of reason what it means to be reasonable than the Enlightenment people did. Enlightenment people thought that reason is this higher faculty of mind that allows us to uh, set aside our passions and so on and um, apply logic. And it was this sort of idea that it's universal and it precedes mankind, whereas for these kind of more Hegelian thinkers and Marxian thinkers, you have something that the theory precedes everything. We're not going to figure out the truth we're going to start with the theory and then apply that to the world. This is a very different way to think about things. So reason itself becomes this thing. What most of us would think of as being reasonable becomes this thing that falls under attack from that perspective because it's not being reasonable within their system, which for them is a whole and closed system of reasoning. Reason is the higher, Vernunft is the higher thing. Okay? Um, and maybe I mispronounced those. Maybe those are pronounced Fairstand and Vernunft. I don't know. They're spelled with a V. I, I, my German is terrible. Uh, but anyway, I can spell them for you if you need. Um, when this finally... So Marxism doesn't work, obviously, and these revolutions fall apart. 1917, the Russian Revolution is the only one that succeeds. Everything else is not working. We've covered the history of the emergence of the Frankfurt School, uh, critical theorists, um, cultural Marxism in the past in different places. I did not conflate those incorrectly. I can distinguish and I can tell you what they are uh, quite clearly, of course, but this is where you start to see this denial of reason and reasonability. So here's where I really want to get to the meat of what I'm doing. I want to try to convince you that the woke don't believe that there's a reasonable person in the world. Nobody's reasonable. That's a profound idea. And that they get this from the critical theorists who also think nobody's reasonable as we'll see, and the postmodernists who believe that reason is totally an illusion. Okay, so this is the kind of thing that I want to want, want to start building towards. We're going to focus now by talking about the neo-Marxists and the postmodernists, as I did with, with talking about authenticity. But let me just take a second here and point out what I really mean. Under woke ideology, and I totally mean this, there is no such thing as a reasonable person. 
There is no reasonable position you can take. There is no reasonable perspective. There's no way people could agree to say, yeah, that's reasonable, and no, that's not reasonable. In a sense, that means everything boils down in woke ideology or under the woke worldview to power because something has to be there. There's no reasonable perspective. Nobody can take uh, a reasonable perspective because that perspective might be tainted by racism, for example, or it might be tainted by self-interest, or it might be tainted by normativity if we're talking about queer theory. We'll kind of come back to that kind of thing. And so there is no reasonable person. There are only people who are caught up in various, say, identity categories or whatever that are fighting for their own interests that they aren't even fully cognizant of unless they happen to be woke, at which point they're no longer being reasonable. Now they're being uh, being activists. Um, so there is none. There's no such thing as a reasonable person. Then this has profound implications. You know, we talk about the questioning of Enlightenment rationalism and that quote from the, the critical race theory book, but they also say that they question legal reasoning. Well, one of the things in legal reasoning is called the reasonable person standard. Okay, so we'll come back to this later and have an example of it, but if, if you can't consider, you know, the reasonable person standard asks the question when you have something that's not cut and dry in the evidence, what would a reasonable person think? How would a reasonable person interpret this? Under woke ideology, there is no reasonable person. There's only power. So it becomes how would a white person interpret this and why in, in their own self-interest, obviously. How would a black person and their oppression interpret this and why? And what does that say about the circumstances? And that's going to change the legal system entirely. So legal reasoning gets completely thrown into question around the idea that there's no reasonable person. I don't think you've comprehended how catastrophic to our legal system it will be to get rid of the idea. But we could talk about rule of law. We can talk about legal reasoning. We can talk about neutral principles of constitutional law. But if you get rid of a reasonable person standard where nobody is able to be considered reasonable, you have absolutely no basis for judging somebody's behavior. And you have absolutely no universal standard that you can try to appeal to in situations where there's any ambiguity whatsoever. And then these woke power dynamics, these weird theories of power dynamics, become the only adjudicator. So this is where you'll end up with things like saying that, that, that black individuals can't be guilty of shoplifting because of the systems of power that have led them to behave in that way. A reasonable person would look at that and say, that's ridiculous. They're a human being. They're, they're capable of, of higher order thought. They're capable of impulse control like anybody else because the, this color of one's skin is not relevant to this. And the woke answer says, well, that's just a white perspective. You, what you call reasonability is imposing whiteness upon a situation to where it doesn't apply. And when you impose whiteness, you're just reproducing the very power dynamics you refuse to understand by saying that's a reasonable position. This is what you end up with. And so then the stupid woke analysis replaces anything like an objective standard, anything like the ability to get along, because everything becomes about these tortured arguments to claim that there was a power dynamic involved or somebody's got a self-interest that they're not examining or they have a bias that they're not considering or something. And then basically it allows the people, if this were to be empowered, who have empowered themselves with this to cook the books in their favor at all times. Um, so the, the idea, I mean, it's so, I, I feel like I just have to say it again, but because it's so bizarre that in wokeness, there is no reasonable person. There is no such thing as being reasonable. You cannot be reasonable. You can only put forth what Marx would have called your class interests, except now your class interests are caught up in your racial culture or your identity or something like this. 
Um, and this is a very dangerous thing. But I want to kind of make a case that this isn't new. That's what I started out saying, that this isn't new. This is a this is a, like a hundred-year-old kind of concept, at least. I mean, I talked about Hegel and Rousseau and Marx, and that's all more than a hundred years. But when we really start looking at neo-Marxism, because wokeness is neo-Marxism combined with postmodernism, and if you haven't figured that out yet, you know, you really got to get that together, that that's what's going on. These two have fused and created this horrific new philosophy. We start talking about neo-Marxism. Neo-Marxism actually has the same idea and the, the core idea in some sense of neo-marxism or a core idea let me not over speak is false consciousness it is this idea that individuals are not acting reasonably when they believe they're acting reasonably because they actually have false consciousness about how the world works they've been brainwashed as marcusa herbert marcusa talks about frequently by the heteronymous interests of the world, which is mostly the capitalist class, but also the various groups that are in power, whether that's white supremacists, as he would, well, I mean, in the 1950s and 60s, he has a point, as he would see it, is that, you know, for when we start dipping into queer theory, which is much more um, kind of Michel Foucault, uh, Foucaultian, um, are we talking about, you know, that straight people you know, are more reasonable and gay is an unreasonable perspective or homosexuality is, is, is unreasonable and pathological? The idea, though, is that the normativity there, I'm sorry, the, 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 the normativity there removes one's ability, being heteronormative or cisnormative, removes one's ability to understand from another perspective. It's a kind of false consciousness, internalized racism, internalized sexism, internalized transphobia, internalized misogyny, internal, all these internalized ableism, there's, there's so many of these things, are all forms. These are all derivations of this concept of false consciousness, and false consciousness is really a beating heart of critical theory. The point of critical theory, in a very real sense, is to reveal people reveal to people that they live in false consciousness. If you read the critical theorists, that's very deeply kind of what their project is, that the, the false consciousness is that they are working against their own interests as uh, usually working class individuals, because it's still quite Marxist, although they do have their critiques of Marx, um, and that, they that you possess a lack of awareness of the realities of the oppression of your condition. And I want to just read, I'd like, this is an audacious claim, but I just want to read to you a few examples and kind of talk about them for a second from, I'm not going to do this with all of the stuff I want to talk about, but from, from Herbert Marcuse in particular, um, he makes it very clear that this is central to his thought. And again, just to frame out Marcuse, you know, I talked about repressive tolerance in the past. I'm going to do the essay on liberation soon. Um, Marcuse was a rock star. He was kind of like the kingpin of the critical school of critical theory, the Frankfurt School, after World War II. Uh, Max Horkheimer would have kind of been the, the, the leader before World War II. And after World War II, um, his colleague Herbert Marcuse takes over. And Marcuse is, I think, a absolutely totalitarian mind. But we talked about repressive tolerance. I will quote a little bit from repressive tolerance here. But he also, in 19, that was in 1965, he wrote that essay. In 1964, he had a blockbuster of a book that sold many hundreds of thousands of copies in 1964. It was kind of like the left-wing intelligentsia book. It's called One Dimensional Man. And in One Dimensional Man, he makes exactly the case that I'm making. He says it again, of course, in Repressive Tolerance, as you will, will have heard. I'll quote a little bit from that again. If you've gone through my series on Repressive Tolerance, so you've heard it. Um, but this idea of false consciousness is so central to his thinking that I just want to draw this out a little bit. And again, the point is that this means that Marcuse, that the critical theorists from whom all of the cr critical race theory 
is a critical theory uh, where all of these ideas have come down from. Uh, the neo-Marxist model holds that people are trapped by uh, false consciousness. They are misled, almost brainwashed by the so-called heteronymous interests of, of power and money. That very, heteronymous means like kind of many and outside of yourself. Multi, it's you know in comparison to autonomy, uh, that's you have your own ability and to, to name things technically. And heteronymous means other people are naming things for you. Um, and so he has this view that false consciousness is central and therefore people who think they're acting reasonably are not acting reasonably. In other words, you're already having the complete destruction of the idea of a reasonable person because a typical person that you would see as reasonable, according to Marcuse, is not reasonable because they're upholding the system that exists and that system itself is unreasonable and is in fact the product of an oppressive situation. And in fact, Marcuse is quite cynical about this and says that the thing itself actually makes you like it. The system makes you like it. Again, we could track this back to Marx and we can track this back to Hegel. And if you read Marcuse, you can see that he cites both, but he really leans on Hegel for this. this uh, he is a very Hegelian thinker. Um, but in this sense of that young Hegelian track that Marx was a big fan of, there are other ways to interpret and understand Hegel. Uh, so let's just read for a second from the introduction to One Dimensional Man. And this is actually Marcuse himself writing. He says, the fact that the vast majority of the population accepts and is made to accept this society does not render it less irrational and less reprehensible. The distinction between true and false consciousness, real and immediate interest, still is meaningful. But this distinction itself must be validated. Men must come to see it and to find their way from false to true consciousness, from their immediate to their real interest. They can do so only if they live in the need of changing their way of life, of denying the positive, of refusing. It is precisely this need which the established society manages to repress to the degree to which it is capable of delivering the goods on an increasingly large scale and using the scientific conquest of nature for the scientific conquest of man. Which is kind of a funny thing that he talks about the scientific conquest of man, seeing as in the essay on liberation, he literally talks about biologically remaking man for liberation, which is in line with the Soviet idea of the new Soviet man, which is literally eugenics to make people accept communism where they don't, <laughs> they don't naturally. But at any rate, at any rate, what you see here though, that first sentence, the fact that the vast majority of the population accepts and is made to accept, it's imposed on them. We heard that when we talked about Kimberly Crenshaw, that race is imposed on us, is made to accept this society, does not render it less irrational and less reprehensible. So he's contending that we live in a reprehensible, irrational society that's imposed upon people and they're forced to accept it, and most people do accept it. But that doesn't tell you anything, he's, what he's saying, that there is a true consciousness out there, but there's also false consciousness. And you have to understand the difference is what he's saying. And his argument boils down to the idea that if you have false consciousness, you don't actually, you're not actually thinking reasonably. You're not thinking for yourself. You're not thinking autonomously. You are thinking in terms of what the society itself wants you to think. So you're not rational. You're not reasonable. You're not even good. You actually are playing out the roles that is imposed upon you by an irrational and reprehensible society. The same kind of theme shows up, by the way, in the Dialectic of Enlightenment, which is by Max Horkheimer, who I mentioned, and Theodore Adorno, the kind of two other huge figures of the Frankfurt School. 
This is a very common line of thinking within critical theory. This is a, this is kind of the core of critical theory. Part of the point of critical theory is so-called to expose the fact that people have false consciousness and that they enjoy their lives. And Marcuse says that you can only get to the diff- to, to true consciousness, where he believes that actual thought can occur. If you read Repressive Tolerance, he talks about that. You can only do so if they live in need of changing their way of life, denying the positive of refusing. And that, he says, is what the established society manages to repress by delivering the goods, by making things work. Therefore, people think things are great, people are having a good life, people are enjoying things in their life, and they therefore don't have a revolutionary consciousness that tells them they don't have a critical consciousness that tells them that the world actually could be completely rethought and completely be redifferent according to what people like Marcuse have defined to be reasonable and good, as opposed to irrational and reprehensible. So another piece further down in One Dimensional Man, he writes, I have just suggested that the concept of alienation, so alienation is a core concept in, in all of Marxism and neo-Marxism. The idea is that the, the the exploitation of labor in Marxism, but also the industrial society itself. But this is the the consumerist society and the capitalist society and the bourgeois society alienate typical people from their lives and and create this big divorce. This is kind of weird dissatisfaction that the critical theorists hold and they project on everybody else who mostly don't have it. That's kind of their whole game. Iron law of woke projection goes way back. Um, so he wants to talk about this this concept of alienation. So let me start that passage again now that I've kind of clarified the, what they mean by alienation, which is the, the, you know they again it's people feel like they're disconnected from the real because of the artificiality of life. And this of course went to this, when we talk about the authenticity thing. That's kind of huge. You know, if you go back and listen to that podcast, you get that sense from these Frankfurt School guys, but super get that sense from the postmodernists. Um, huge focus on alienation. Like I said, it's a crisis of authenticity, reaching back over a hundred years and that's we're stuck with this and that's why it's like so hipster centric but anyway i digress back to one-dimensional man i have just suggested he writes that the concept of alienation seems to become questionable when the individuals identify themselves with the existence which is imposed upon them and have it in their own development and satisfaction this identification is not illusion but reality however the reality constitutes a more progressive stage of alienation The latter has become entirely objective. The subject which is alienated is swallowed up by its alienated existence. There is only one dimension, and it is everywhere and in all forms. The achievement of progress defy ideological indictment, as well as justification before their tribunal. The false consciousness of their rationality becomes the true consciousness. So he's saying that this imposition of society is so total, is so total, that people can't tell the difference between their false consciousness and what is reality. And it's the false consciousness of their rationality. This is, again, people don't have their own reason. They don't have their own rational mind when they are in the system. This is the same system that we have systemic racism and systemic sexism and transphobia and homophobia and all the rest is systems of domination. Same idea, same system, the system itself, the liberal order that we're going to call its very foundations into question. Same idea, same system. The claim is that this thing alienates people so badly. It alienates them so badly that they actually go into an even deeper stage of alienation. 
because it's providing for them uh, their own satisfaction to the point where they literally don't have their own rationality. Their rationality is, in fact, just caught up within the web of false consciousness. And therefore, they are thinking through the society rather than thinking for themselves. There is no reasonable person. You can't say what a reasonable person would say under this kind of doctrine because what a reasonable person would say upholds this oppressive, terrible status quo. And that's kind of the big theme of critical theory. What people think is reasonable, what that reasonable person standard would look like, actually just upholds all of these terrible systems of domination. That's kind of the heart and soul that's exposing those, uh, you know, critical theory often positions itself as, as questioning things, you know, at a deeper level of showing unexamined assumptions and uncovering biases. Well, that's exactly what's going on here is, is that they're, that they're, they're claiming that, um, those biases and assumptions are so deep that people who are thinking that they're being rational, are actually just reproducing the problematic system. Then a little further down in One Dimensional Man, where you kind of get the, the thesis statement of the book, really, uh, in a very meaningful sense, Marcuse writes, The productive apparatus and the goods and services which it produces sell or impose the social system as a whole. The means of mass transportation and communication, the commodities of lodging, food, and clothing, the irresistible output of the entertainment and information industry carry with them prescribed attitudes and habits, certain intellectual and emotional reactions which bind the consumers more or less pleasantly to the producers and through the latter to the whole. The products indoctrinate and manipulate. They promote a false consciousness which is immune against its falsehood. And as these beneficial products become available to more individuals and more social classes, the indoctrination they carry ceases to be publicity. It becomes a way of life. It is a good way of life, much better than before. And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change. Thus emerges a pattern of one-dimensional thought and behavior in which ideas, aspirations, and objectives that by their content transcend the established universe of discourse and action are either repelled or reduced to terms of this universe. They are redefined by the rationality of the given system and of its quantitative extension. This is a hell of a paragraph, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you caught all this, but he, so he's talking at the beginning about how the, the system, our capitalist system, is getting better and better and better at producing goods and services and getting them to consumers. And people like this. We're talking about mass transportation, communication, lodging, food, clothing, entertainment, information. And people like it. And he says that this carries with them prescribed attitudes and habits, intellectual and emotional reactions that bind the consumers to the producers and thus to everybody else. And so the system becomes a closed loop. And you're not thinking for yourself now. You're thinking in terms of that system. How did he says this? The products indoctrinate, manipulate. You can go buy stuff that you like. You can turn on Netflix and watch something that you enjoy. And propaganda in them aside, uh, He's saying that the very act of this whole thing 
indoctrinates and manipulates you into the values that keep the entire system going. They promote a false consciousness, which is immune against its falsehood. You can't even tell that you're in a false consciousness. You're not thinking rationally. You try to think rationally, and you're thinking still in terms of the false consciousness inside the system. And all of these beneficial products, he says, become available to more individuals and more social classes. Sorry, poors, your life just got worse because you can have stuff. <laughs> because the indoctrination they carry now ceases to be publicity and becomes a way of life. People want to continue their good way of life. And he even says, it is a good way of life, much better than before. But he hates that because it's not revolutionary. He even says... And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change. In other words, it's not going to induce a revolution. The more happy people are, the more satisfied they are, the more satisfactory their lives, their ability to obtain good services, uh, uh, information, entertainment that they're interested in, the less they want to overthrow society. So it militates against qualitative change. The guy's a lunatic. So he says that this creates, you're not reasonable because it creates a pattern of one-dimensional thought. You're not able to think outside of the system any longer. Thought and behavior become one-dimensional. And then your aspirations and objective by their content, uh, and, sorry, in which ideas, aspirations, and objectives that transcend the established universe of discourse and action. In other words, this, the existing system, everything, discourse and action. Everything that could be a, tr- a, a, a totally new revolutionary way to be that because of it becoming a good way of life is repelled or reduced into the terms of the system that's producing the good way of life. So in other words, the rationality of the given system is a false rationality and anything that might go outside of that, it's able to repackage and pump back into it. So if you think you're being reasonable in a system like a liberal system, you're not. This goes right back to the idea that with Marx, that you're thinking in terms of your class interests, it goes in that the, the, the bourgeoisie and the capitalists are producing for you this idea, these ideas about what life should look like for you, and they're keeping you trapped in, in your economic conditions. This goes back to the idea that Hegel had about the, um, you know, the ideas of society become kind of the, the spirit of the world and that something has to break free of them at a, at a different level. And, you know, there's the two different levels of thinking. This is so presumptuous, though, because Herbert Marcuse now believes, you know, he's one of the enlightened few that knows what the real deal is. He knows just how terrible and oppressive the system is. It's not a system that's imperfect, that's working out its kinks and increasing, even though he says it is, it's increasing the range of goods and services to different social and economic classes. You'd think that would be positive for him. It's not positive for him because it steals the revolutionary zeal from them and therefore leads them to be stuck in their one-dimensional false consciousness where they are not actually reasonable. They are upholding their own system of oppression. And this is the way that critical theory thinks about everything. And this goes down into the new critical theories like critical race theory that's dominant today except it's race interests now instead of class interests. Um, one more time from, from One Dimensional Man, one last paragraph. Just to, I really want this picture to be clear that there's no reasonable person, because if you're reasonable, if you think you're reasonable, unless you are a critical theorist, critical theorists for Marcuse are reasonable. They're using capital R reason, which is the, the, the Wernunft of, uh, of our friend Hegel. Everybody else is stuck in false consciousness. They're not reasonable. They're just reproducing the rationality of the existing system, which to him, even though it's great, sucks. Even though it's making people happy, it's terrible. It's making them unhappy. They just don't know it. 
Um, and it's the, the cheek of this guy to talk about the heteronymous interests. He wants to be the heteronymous interest. He wants to tell people how they should think. He wants to tell people how to vote in their own interest, which is his interest, of course. It's one of the most totalitarian guys ever uh, that was able to like bill himself as anti-totalitarian. But one more passage from One Dimension Man, then we'll do one from Repressive Tolerance, and we'll get out of this, this critical theorist crap. Um, Marcuse writes, we may distinguish both true and false needs. False are those which are superimposed upon the individual by particular social interests in his repression. The needs which perpetuate toil, aggressiveness, misery, and injustice. Their satisfaction might be the most gratifying to the individual. You might be happy. But this happiness is not a condition which has to be maintained and protected if it serves to arrest the development of the ability, his own and others, to recognize the disease of the whole and grasp the chances of curing the disease. The result, then, is euphoria and unhappiness. Most of the prevailing needs to relax, to have fun, to behave and consume in accordance with the advertisements, to love and hate what others love and hate, belong to this category of false needs. Such needs have a, uh, have a societal content and function which are determined by external powers over which the individual has no control. The development and satisfaction of these needs is heteronymous. No matter how much such needs may have become the individual's own, reproduced and fortified by the conditions of his existence, no matter how much he identifies himself with them and finds himself in their satisfaction, they continue to be what they were from the beginning, products of, of a society whose dominant interest demands repression. So if you needed a tighter nail in the coffin that Herbert Marcuse thinks he knows what you need better than you do, and that leftist, radical leftist thought thinks that it knows what you need better than you do, turn no further than this pair of paragraphs. This is actually two paragraphs talking about false and true needs superimposed upon the individual. He talks repeatedly about how they might bring you satisfaction, most gratifying, euphoria and unhappiness, unhappiness you don't even detect because you're euphoric, you're happy. Uh, you know, you may be having satisfaction of your needs to relax, to have fun, to behave and consume in accordance with, he wouldn't say your wishes, he says with the advertisements, to love and hate what others love and hate. Because you don't have your own mind, because you're being programmed constantly by the society. You're not a reasonable person. You're just a product of the society that's brainwashed you. This is critical theory. This is the heartbeat of critical theory. It's a nightmare. The needs themselves, he says, have societal content and function that are determined by external powers over which the individual has no control. So the development and satisfaction of these needs. So you thinking that you need the things that you need in your life to feel fulfillment and feel happy and to enjoy your life and to, to eat and to have a home and the satisfaction of those needs so that you can actually have a pretty good life on balance. Nope, that's all heteronymous. That's all coming from other people. It's not you. You've been tricked. You're not a reasonable person. No matter how much the needs become your own, he says, reproduce and fortified by the conditions of your existence. No matter how much you identify yourself with them, find yourself in their satisfaction. Nope, they're all just tools of oppression to uphold a dominant interest. You're not acting reasonably, you're acting in somebody else's service and you don't even know it. That's critical theory. What a nightmare. 
So you're not a reasonable person under critical theory, but let's just hit it. What does he say we should do about this? A year later, he writes the essay, Repressive Tolerance, which of course we've talked about here on the podcast in great deal or great detail. I read the whole thing um, in four episodes. So almost five hours of repressive tolerance for you waiting to go check it out. What does he write? Just to do one paragraph or part of one paragraph. I think this is a very important paragraph. <laughs> it's pretty scary. Uh, when tolerance, Marcuse writes, mainly serves a protection and preservation of a repressive society, which is one any society he doesn't like, when it serves to neutralize opposition and render men immune against other and better forms of life, which he means communism, without the bureaucracies, of course, then tolerance has been perverted. And when this perversion starts in the mind of the individual, in his consciousness, his needs, when heteronomous interests occupy him before he can experience his servitude, then the efforts to counteract his dehumanization must begin at the place of entrance. There where the false consciousness takes form, or rather, is systematically formed. It must begin with a stopping, sorry, it must begin with stopping the words and images which feed this consciousness. To be sure, this is censorship, even pre-censorship, but openly directed against the more or less hidden censorship that permeates the free media. So what Marcuse says we have to do about this, because those heteronymous interests that we just pointed out, that you aren't reasonable, you're actually operating in the service of other people's ideas to their interests, those heteronymous interests occupy you before you can experience your servitude. You might like your life, Marcuse is saying, but you're actually in servitude. You're actually in servitude to this corrupt and evil system, right? Those other and better forms of life that it would be on the other side if you could just throw off the entire idea of the entire system and have a complete revolution of everything in the organization of society led by people like Herbert Marcuse and the critical race theorists and Black Lives Matter and shit should be great. Whoa, if you just got on the other side of that, if you just experienced your servitude, you would break free of those heteronymous interests keeping you in this nightmare. Then you could think those things and then you would be reasonable. And the only way to do it, Marcuse says, is by stopping the words and images which feed your so-called false consciousness. And remember, this false consciousness is imposed upon you. It's systematically formed by those heteronymous interests in you. You've been brainwashed. You're not reasonable. To be, to be sure, he says this is censorship, even pre-censorship. So you must be pre-censored. You must not even have cognitive liberty. Forget free speech. Forget the aspect of free speech where you're allowed to listen to what you want to listen to. You shouldn't even be allowed to think. You shouldn't be allowed to be exposed to ideas that would lead you to think things that uphold the existing system. Because that way, only that way, by being completely prevented from thinking anything other than critical theory that ex allegedly exposes this, in that way only can you be reasonable. Now with the postmodernists, this gets even crazier. For them, there's no such thing as reason at all. Reason, knowledge, are socially constructed. They are products of the culture, of the place and time where they arise. The cultural, they are cultural artifacts. So for you to behave in what you think is reasonable means that you're behaving reasonably in the society that you occupy currently. You can see that there's a parallel to these so-called heteronymous interests of the Frankfurt School. You are completely locked in what you think becomes reasonable behavior, but that's just a cultural artifact. That's what your culture thinks is knowledgeable or reasonable, what they think is true, what they think is a good way to get to, you know, 
uh, truth or justice or whatever other thing that is, is desirable in society. Those are all just artifacts of the culture in which you live. There's nothing underlying it. There's no, as the Bible might have it, logos preceding this. There is no reason that precedes. There's no human nature that can be analyzed that precedes any of this. It's all just a cultural artifact. It's all just socially constructed. There is no reasonable anything because there is no reason. Reason is just a cultural artifact. It's just the way that people think when they're locked in a particular culture. So you can see the parallel to the neo-Marxist thing, but it kind of takes it to a complete like level of steroids where this is where you have Jean-Francois Leotard. And I've mentioned this many times talking about the pyrology of, uh, no, sorry, legitimation by pyrology, uh, where he talks about that in the postmodern condition, which he published in 1979. Um, what he's talking about is that you don't have reason. You have consensus. You have a bunch of people who all think the same thing and you just go along with them. That's this kind of the same thing that Marcuse was saying, but this is taken to a much higher level. There's just consensus and stuff is considered to be legitimate because there's consensus. We could talk about it in terms of, you know, Foucault, who, who, who thought that, you know, the society is imposing norms upon people and those norms are meant to, to, to discipline them and keep them in line and to get them to discipline themselves and behave in certain ways. And so they're not actually acting reasonably. They're acting in a way that has been, they've been conditioned by society to do so. They've been socialized by the social environment, by the social constructions of the environment they live in. There is no reasonable person. And now the woke have taken these ideas. Now, obviously being neo-Marxist, they're, they're, they have much of what I've read from Marcuse, but they've taken these ideas even further. They've taken these ideas and locked them into the cultures that they've defined as surrounding um, identity categories, for example, in particular. Because woke is really boils down to using neo-Marxism and postmodernism. I said it's the fusion of those things in order to do identity politics. That's what wokeness is. Wokeness is the fusion of neo-Marxism and postmodernism to do identity politics. And so at this point, it's not possible because your race is imposed upon you within critical race theory, for example. The norms of, say, gender and sex and sexuality are imposed upon you. So you're not possible to be reasonable under queer theory. Um, under post-colonial theory, what we call reason is, is just European thought that's being imposed upon the rest of the world. So you have the idea of knowledge or science colonizing the rest of the world with white Western, as they phrase it, Euro, Eurocentric thought. And so this isn't reason. It's just European culture. Like it's, it's like 18th century European culture being pushed on everybody else in the world. Not because it works, not because they've decided or whatever, just because, um, because it, it, the, 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 the European powers had the power to impose it on the rest of the world and force everybody else to think and act in their way. Again, there's no logic that precedes any of this. There is no reason that precedes any of this. So when you hear an in intersectionality that um, positionality must be continually engaged or intentionally engaged, those are phrases that they use. Positionality is your relationship to the so-called web or matrix of systemic power dynamics under identity politics. And you, what you have to do is you have to find your standing because your level of being able to be reasonable is local to which identity categories you are part of. And how you will adjudicate who's being more reasonable and who's being less is going to be 
done through engaging that positionality? Have you authentically represented what critical race theory, for example, says about what it means to be your race in a system of power dynamics that's basically white supremacist, largely anti-black, lots of other properties? With structural determinism baked in, that's a huge one, right? So structural determinism is this idea that these systems of power determine your outcomes, right? This is a core concept of critical race theory, but all of these kind of critical theories are structural determinism that who you are determines because of the systems of power around who you are determines how your life is going to go. And they believe that their identity theories have been the only authentic expression of what that looks like. And so you can be said to be more reasonable in a sense if they would use that or that your claims are more valid if they match what critical theory says. It's the exact same idea that Marcuse was doing, but now it's just fractured into a kaleidoscope of identity categories and nonsense. Um, within critical race theory, for example, the idea of reason is held up as, as, as how white people justify their own BS to themselves and maintain control. It's how they, they claim that they have objectivity, whereas nobody else does. All thought, all reason is therefore tainted by racism and the desire to maintain racism and the epistemic closure of white people that's maintained in white comfort so that white people don't become uncomfortable, that somebody, some other way of knowing or some other way of thinking might depose theirs and thus disempower them. This is really how they think. So there's no reasonable person at all. There's no reasonable perspective. There's only your positionality. And so your positionality becomes the determinant of how we're going to adjudicate claims. There's not going to be, you go to court under this, there is no reasonable person to whom you could appeal. There's only an engagement of positionality. In other words, this critical, it's not just race, it's critical social justice web of theories. There's a critical social justice theory, capital T theory, that tells you kind of how all of the, the various positionalities relate to one another, and then you, people fight over this, obviously, all the time. I call it intersectionality chewing on its own leg a lot of the times. Uh, that paradigm is how you're going to resolve differences and disputes within this. You can get, a, I mean, kind of a great example, I said that we would come back to this, uh, within feminism, for example, under the Me Too doctrine, which is a very, of course, narrow branch of feminism, very recent thing. But imagine that you were accused of a Me Too kind of situation, right? And so you end up going to court. Let's say it's a circumstance where there actually is some evidence for whatever reason, like Maybe something got recorded by mistake or intentionally or whatever. And so you actually have this and then you have the, or you have like the text messages, right? I think there are some cases where people actually did have the text messages, but the, let's put it in a situation where there's a little ambiguity, right? Was this a sexual assault or not? And there's a little ambiguity, right? Like she said some stuff where he was like, Hey, you know, green light. And then he was, you know, he said some stuff where she was like, you know, whatever, you know, there's a little ambiguity. Let's make it really a case where there's some ambiguity here, right? So what you would have to do, so now you have evidence to weigh on this claim. A lot of sexual assault and rape cases don't have this, and this is a legitimate reason why this is such a contentious kind of area. Um, but let's say that we actually have this style of evidence, but there is this matter of having to interpret, you know, was this flirting enough of a green light to constitute consent? Was this, you know hinting around metaphors, whatever it was. And so what you might have to appeal to at that point is a reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person 
in the same situation, what would any reasonable person, what would most reasonable people actually, it's not a reasonable person, it's really what would most reasonable people put into the situation read it as? And if you could make a claim that the majority of people who are considered of sound mind and a reasonable you know, background would see this and think, yeah, she really agreed, then you have this situation where under the way that we actually adjudicate law, we would be able to say, okay, you know, he's off the hook. He had a reasonable, uh, you know, a reasonable degree of confidence that he had been given consent and, you know, acted accordingly and obviously got messy, etc. And if it doesn't break that way, if most reasonable people would look at this, like maybe she's like, well, I do like your eyes. Like, no, most reasonable people would not interpret I do like your eyes as an invitation for sex, like that, that's a consent to sex. And therefore, most reasonable people or all reasonable people would look at this and say, hmm, that's not, that's not it. No, dude's a creeper. And he's going to, he's going to be in trouble. It's going to break the other way. And so this standard of a reasonable person injects a kind of objectivity into a situation that is ultimately subjective. And it's necessary because many of the cases, sometimes you just have straight objective evidence in law and that's fine, but sometimes you don't. In a reasonable person standard, how would a reasonable person, how would any reasonable per person or any all reasonable people interpret what's in front of us here to make a judgment upon something that has some level of ambiguity to it is an important standard. Now, if we say that there is no reasonable person because the man always has the power, and that there's always a power dynamic involved. And even if her appear, appearance to consent was extremely clear and extremely explicit, I consent to this with you, the argument can be easily made under this power dynamic replacement that she only consented in order to satisfy the fact that he wanted it and there's some power dynamic involved, blah, 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 blah. And it makes absolutely, with no reasonable person to appeal to, all you have left to appeal to is the offended party really, because that's the way this is all getting prioritized. And therefore, you have a complete um, inability to appeal to law and, and to do law. And so if you said, well, what would any reasonable person say? Not just, you know, this judge or whatever. They'd say, well, there is no reasonable person because everybody's tainted by these power dynamics. Was that racist or not? Well, who can tell? The only person who can tell is the person who claims to have experienced it, impact over intent. And that's where you end up. If you obliterate the idea that there's a reasonable person saying, what would be reasonable to teach in a classroom? Well, who could say? There's nobody that's reasonable. Absolutely nobody that's reasonable. You know, what's the reasonable extension of what what level of, um, what am I looking for? When, when, you know, somebody says their pronouns, right? Like, do I have to go along with that? Like, how much... How much how much compulsion is there for me to participate in this, right? Do I have to be compelled to, to participate in this? Well, if there's no, a reasonable person might say, but if there is no reasonable person, there are just people who have been conditioned by hetero and cisnormativity to think in particular ways, and that those are ultimately heteronomous interests that maintain oppression of this victim. Now we're in a territory where nobody has any ability to step back and reason through any of this stuff. This is really dangerous. It's all really bad. Without a reasonable person, a lot in law, but also a lot in just navigating society becomes impossible. 
And when you're not talking about something that rises to a legal standard where it's in court, but now it has to be adjudicated by like, say, a, um, you know, disciplinary office at a university or your HR department or something, it gets even messier and messier and messier. The ability to make a case on its merits basically gets destroyed and gets replaced with who can claim the worst injury or but an injury that is in line with these alleged systems of power. In other words, what this does is it empowers critical theories, which are the, which view themselves as the only possible reasonable thing, because all else is false consciousness. You either are the critical consciousness or a false consciousness. It empowers those to do whatever they want with absolutely no check, absolutely no balance, absolutely no answer. And that's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. So in the absence of reason, and in the absence of a sense of what it even means to be reasonable, so that there are no reasonable people whatsoever, adjudication has to happen some other way because there will still be disputes. And that way is always going to be to the degree that the woke are empowered through their so-called radical egalitarian view. In other words, we're going to use theory to determine who has the worst oppression, who is the most victimized according to their, their perceived impact of the situation, and that's the only thing that can be believed. So the, the, the accused... Anyone accused, therefore, just becomes guilty if they're accused by somebody who's claiming that it's tied to a system of oppression. That, that's a it's a legal and social superpower that is abused. It gets abused constantly. If you have privilege in the the particular positional analysis, if you're deemed to be in a privileged position relative to the other person, and that's somehow relevant to what's going on, then your testimony is completely moot. Appealing, as I said, to reason is appealing to a corrupt system that itself is, you know, heteronymous interests that, that's reproducing the problems. Appealing to reasonable people is appealing to a consensus that's actually just brainwashed by the prevailing power structure that has false consciousness and doesn't realize that it's not even acting in a reasonable way. And that's just reproducing injustice. This is a terrible way to think. This is a terrible way to think. And of course, there is reason. There are discernible patterns to the working of the universe. If you're religious, of course, you're, you're, if you're Christian, for example, you know, the logos precedes everything. And so logic and reason precede human beings. Well, if you look into the world, that's true as well. We can make sense of our, our sense data come in and we can actually make sense of things. We can make predictions. You know, the philosophy of science didn't just spring out of the ground, you know, malformed yesterday. There's a lot that can be said about this, about, you know, uh, the the flexibility of our models, the um, precision and accuracy of our models, their predictive capacity, their their parsimony, and etc. There's a lot that can be said for these things, and reason allows us to work our way through. Reason is what allows us to do deductions and inferences, and reason is also something that's built into that intuitive line of thinking because human nature is human nature and we do get it while there are cultural variations and there are social aspects to it we get insulted by violating certain things that are probably fairly universal like what is considered sacred in say maybe mainland china and in uh, say kansas might be very different right now but the idea that some sacred thing has been violated is probably universal. And the reaction that people have when the sacred thing has been violated is universal. Um, 
there's some flexibility to it, of course. There are socially constructed aspects to what we consider to be polite or what we consider to be reasonable. If you've ever been, I've been to China a bunch of times. And so one of the things as a Westerner going to China that you learn is like in the West, you know, if we want to get on the train, you wait in line, you're polite, you let the person go in front of you, you know, you do these things. No, after you, well, you do it in China, you're never getting on the train. <laughs> like this just kind of mob. And it's not, I'm not making fun of China or their norm. It's a different norm. But if you don't know how to play by that rule, you're it's like, you, you literally might miss the train and have to catch the next one. Um, or worse, you know, there might be things that they're giving out or that are available and you might just not get one. Uh, tending to wait politely is a, this is a Western kind of norm and it's not present typically in mainland China. Um, but nevertheless, there are like, if there are norms that, that, that are present in terms of how people behave. And if you violate those, you're probably going to get the same kinds of offendedness. You're going to get the same kinds of reactions, just whatever they are. Our ability to figure out the world is generally identical because the world is identical, regardless of who you are. And our interpretive mechanisms are effectively identical regardless of who they are. And the whole kind of premise of science, the universality of science is that we, it doesn't matter who does the experiment, so to speak, is that anybody encountering the world can figure these things out. So there is though, however, a, a range at which you might consider getting on, you know, it's not, it's not really consequential, but it's not considered reasonable in the U S to like push your way to the front of the line and get on the train. Whereas it is considered reasonable to do that in China to a degree. So there is some flexibility culturally in terms of what's considered reasonable and what's not. And that that's not totally arbitrary, but it is a little flexible and it's up for questioning and interrogation. It's not all values. I'm not a moral relativist. I'm, I, I do think that different different norms like that sometimes are largely irrelevant. Like, I don't know that I really care how we organize getting onto trains all that much, but, um, there's, I'm not a moral relativist. There are, and to many of these questions there are better and worse answers. And it's, completely nonsensical. The postmodernists took up this. They didn't invent moral relativism, but it's completely nonsensical to believe that, that none of these things are comparable. And that's because there is a human nature substrate beneath it. And also the basic workings of the universe and the world and so on, the basic rules of logic, they all still apply. And those are all universals. Um, it's not all arbitrary. Not everything is a social construction. Value judgments um, precede human cultures in many regards for reasons that are really too deep to get into here. Um, if you want to look into them, they reside in a field of philosophy known as axiology, where our value judgments come from. But the, the takeaway here is that the, the, the idea that there's reasonable norms in society and that there is reason that precedes that and that there is this idea of what is and is not the conclusion that reasonable people would reach is very important very valuable to a society that's going to function. And in wokeness, there is no such thing. They reject the idea of reasonable people. They reject the idea of a reasonable standard. They say there's no God's eye view from nowhere. They accuse uh, white people of falsely claiming that stance of objectivity. They say that property of whiteness is their false belief in their own objectivity. And this is kind of the thing that they're talking about. And in the vacuum of reasonableness in the woke world, which is anti-reasonable, something will have to be used to make the decisions, and that is going to be power as they've theorized it. Their theory, which is going to be wholly corrupt 
at that point is going to justify all, dis all, all decisions around all disputes, which is why the iron law of woke corruption is going to hold. It's always going to be corruption rising because it's a theory that enables corruption. This is because it's obviously profoundly self-serving as more or less everybody's starting to see clearly now. So a standard of what is and is not reasonable universally, or at least universally within a given broad cultural context, you should note the failure of multiculturalism here that you try to cram different cultural contexts without any attempt for them to kind of blur into one another. And you're going to have a catastrophe on your hands. One culture can't understand another under the prevailing theory. Right. Um, but a, a broad perspective of what's con what constitutes being what, what's reasonable behavior is a necessity in a functioning society. You look, for example, when you start importing lots of people with a profoundly different religious belief into one society. So you have one set of beliefs about, you know, say women or homosexuals or both colliding with another that's profoundly different. Now, what are you going to do? Where's your reasonable person standard? Which one of them constitutes reasonable? This is why you have to have a willingness to accept norms, whether it's within a cultural or a, or a national context. And multiculturalism is a failed experiment. It, it breaks apart societies. It does not create functioning societies. Um, the woke actually seek to actively tear this down because it breaks societies. All they want to do is break things down. Um, the last thing we really want, you know, is is to just neglect the idea, though, that there's some underlying fundamental nature, human nature, where reasonability, what's reasonable for how we treat one another, um, can be accessed. We, we, we really need to hold on to that. We need to understand that this idea, I don't know about universal human rights as, as a buzzword, but this concept that there's something universal to human beings that gives us better and worse answers to moral questions like how do you treat women or gays for example in uh, different cultures is a, is a question that can be answered Th that that human nature is not likely to change and despite their stupid plans for new soviet man or liberated man and their utopian fantasies eugenics to get to their utopian fantasies um so we really don't want to lose hold of that so 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 you know, what can you do in the face of a worldview that is taking over or has deeply insinuated itself into our society that doesn't believe in reason, doesn't believe in reasonableness, doesn't believe that there are reasonable people, doesn't believe that anything is more than uh, the interests of, of cultural groups and of the powerful interests within them that have maintained systems of power that are, that are oppressive and dominating and all these terrible things. Well, you have to do the opposite. You can't be shy. You have to assert this is a lie. Don't let the lie come through you. You have to assert that there is such thing as what all reasonable people would accept, that people can be reasonable, that it's not when, 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 you, when somebody says be reasonable, they're not saying act white. And then you also have to be willing to assert that cultural context or sorry, cultural norms within a particular cultural context are actually worth defending. The idea of multiculturalism isn't going to work. We have to reject the idea of multiculturalism because you break down a standard by which people can be judged one way or the other. If you want to participate in a particular cultural milieu, say British or American, then there should be some onus on you to be British or American in your overall outlook. And you can retain whatever aspects of your other of your culture that you want with from there. 
And if you don't want to be British or American and you want to maintain your other cultural con context, stay where that's the norm. And that's fine. I mean, this is a thing that people actually are going to have to defend because it matters because multiculturalism tears down this reasonable person standard and it makes it impossible to adjudicate what is and is not reasonable. Um, that has to be defended. Uh, of course, I still think I, I'm broadly speaking liberal. Uh, the Enlightenment rational approach is something I am defending in this podcast and in in, in almost all of my work. And so that means that we should be questioning our cultural norms. But that should be done through a slow, patient process. It doesn't seek to undermine the society in the process. It doesn't seek to believe. It doesn't start from believing that the society itself is wholly corrupt and needs to be absolutely dis demolished and replaced by something that's a utopian fantasy. And anybody who wants to remove the idea of a reasonable person or a reasonable position that people could take needs to be recognized then as, as removing themselves. This is what you need to, to, to be able to recognize. So they're removing themselves from holding a position that we should take seriously. Herbert Marcuse should not be taken seriously. His idea that the entire society is constantly brainwashing people by making them happy with their lives uh, so that they won't become revolutionaries in his crackpot ideology is not a position that really needs to be taken all that seriously. I mean, we have to be aware of it. We have to take the existence of it seriously. We have to do something about it. But itself as a position is ridiculous. Same thing that you can't think outside of your race or that you saying that, you know, hold on, let's think through this. No, that's appealing to white culture, white values, white norms. That's ridiculous to say, you know, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, we should think a little bit more carefully about what we what we consider to be the range of acceptable, you know, gender or sexual expression or activity or whatever. Maybe we shouldn't have, you know, drag queen story hour for seven-year-olds or schools to say that, no, 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 you're just thinking in terms of the, the heteronormative or cisnormative thinking and that you're, you're upholding oppression in society. Ridiculous. We don't have to be apologetic about standing for this idea that there is a reasonable limit on how our society is going to be organized, what kinds of things we're going to tolerate, and that we're going to enforce that socially. We're actually right. They're wrong. So don't feel discouraged, but do take very seriously the idea that the woke ideology rejects the idea of a reasonable person or a reasonable position entirely. No God's eye view from from, from, they call it the God's eye view from nowhere and they say it doesn't exist. Everything for them is, is a product of social position and all of this. And this is a terrible way to think. So feel confident in rejecting it. Feel confident in seeking out and believing in the idea that, you know, you're not just being bigoted or narrow, as they would tell you, for thinking of what all reasonable people might think about a particular situation or circumstance. <laughs>